dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, the first flesh upon the earth, and the first man also. Now here we have a, 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 an interesting dynamics. We have something that is uh, from the courts of glory, which is the spirit of God breathed into something that's taken from the very lowest common form, the clay and dust of the ground. And God put the two together. And this is the dynamics that's interesting in man as it relates to how we were created. We were created from the dust of the earth, from the most common, lowest form, right? And he had, and God created this, right, put this body together, and it says, then he breathed into him the breath of life, gave a part of his spirit into man and formed man in his own image. He wanted to see the reflection of the beauty that's there, but he also, right, kind of tied together the humblest of things, clay and soil and dust, and combined it with the glory, right? This is, this is what's interesting about this. This is God's response here of what he did with man. What's interesting here, there are basically five things I want to br bring out here that in, in Genesis 2, you have for the first time personal names are introduced. Adam is introduced. God wanted a personal relationship with man to communicate daily, constantly, right? Which happened in the garden before the fall. God stooped to create man. He, he, he stooped down out of the dust of the earth to create man. And he imparted of himself, of his own spirit, into man. And, com and man combines then the highest and the lowest in himself. That's interesting to me. All of us have that, right? And it says God, God created us in his image and uh, in and, and likeness. And, of course, we were not destined to die when we were first created, were we? Death, like physical death, okay? Man has this potential dual relationship. The spirit with God, the body from the earth as it relates to the world, and we're struggled between the two all the time. The physical nature of man, the flesh of the earth, and the spirit of God, right? Paul talks about this all the time, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? He talks about that. Man was visibly to represent God to the rest of creation. We know this because in Genesis 1, if you want to flip back one, one uh, page or so there, actually it's on there, I guess that page still. In Genesis 1, 27 through 29, it says, And I, God, said unto my only begotten, which was with me from the beginning. Christ is the only one that was begotten and not made. He was with me from the beginning. Let us, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and it was so. And I, God, said, let them have dominion over the fishes of the sea, over the fowls of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And I, God, created man in mine own image, in the image of mine only begotten created I him, male and female created I them. So we have the fact that we were created with this beautiful essence of what we were to be, right? Perfect in the day that we were created also, right? Joining together of the dust of the earth and the spirit of God breathed into us. 
and we were given dominion over the earth to rule on behalf of whose authority? Our own? No. God's authority, right? We were to rule. We were the, the pinnacle crown of creation, and we were given dominion over all the other creations to represent God in his image, in his countenance, right, of him and his only begotten son, and had authority over all these things, recognizing that that authority came from God and, and his son, not our own. Okay? So we were given this, but we were given it with conditions. All right? Now, I would argue that the church today has been given great power and authority on earth, restored this great and marvelous work by the Father and by his Son, but that authority only can be administered under that direction of his Spirit. And it, we are to represent him, not ourselves. Same thing. How was the church created? It was formed also, right? Offices were formed. You recall Jesus went when he was personally on the earth and he took men of flesh and clay, come and be followers of, of me, right? Be fishers of men. And he brought them out and he uh, called them and he ordained them. But it says that they were told, it, it was the body was formed, the body of the church was formed, just like Adam. But what happened was it wasn't given the breath of life until the day of Pentecost. And the spirit was breathed into the body and it became living, right? And so we have this dynamics of, of this take place here to exercise authority on behalf of, of God and not of ourselves. So what does Satan do? Satan could not attack God directly. He had been kicked out of the mountain. He had been cast to the earth. He had lost all of the position and, and splendor that he had had there in the courts of glory. And so he couldn't attack God directly. He didn't have the ability to do that. So what's the next best thing? Destroy the image of God, the likeness of the Father and the Son that was made in man, of whom he could at least tempt, right? So this is the response here, and he uses the exact same method that was his downfall in the garden, right? Genesis 3 gives us the rendition of what happens here. Genesis 3, 8 through 11. And Satan had put it into the heart of the serpent, right, who was subtle, to beguile Eve. And he says in verse 8, And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And he spake by the mouth of the serpent. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which thou beholdest in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it became pleasant to the eyes, sensual, right? And a tree to be desired to make her wise, she desired it, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Now what happened here in this particular rendition of what happened in the garden? What was going on here? What did Satan do? He first, right, goes after, and this is very important, 
to build up people's pride, he first goes after the word of the Lord. God had told them and given them a command. They had heard his voice. They knew what God had asked them to do. You can eat of any of these trees in the garden except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat it, if you even touch it, you shall die. That was the command. Okay? He first gets them to doubt the command, to doubt God's word. Right? This is why, you know, when you doubt, right, it, it becomes a problem here if, if God has given you something. He gets them to doubt the word. He challenges the word of God. And once he realizes that Eve was actually interested in what he was saying, then he goes one step further, and then he goes beyond just God's word to actually challenging the very character and nature of God himself. Well, God knows that if in the day you would eat this, you would become like him, right? He goes to challenging God's character, right? So he first attacks the word, gets you to doubt the word. Then he goes after the, the very nature and character of God himself. Once Eve entertained that question, he knew he had her there. And then he offered the same motivation in his own fall that you can become like God. Equality with him, knowing good and evil. You no longer need to depend on God because you'll know this yourself. You see what was happening here? Stoking pride. I mentioned yesterday, intellectualism is the counterfeit of intelligence, right? Adam and Eve intellectually justified the desire, once she saw the fruit, that it was good, that she wanted it, that she desired it, she started doubting the word, and then she went after it and partook. So man fell. So now that man fell, and God's plan for man to rule all of his creation, right, was now in jeopardy <laughs> because after the fall of man sin entered in they were remember they also were kicked out just like lucifer out of the presence of god out of the garden and it says that two cherubim with a flaming sword right stood in the east gate of the garden and they could not come back in lest they partake of the tree of life and live forever in that sinful state so they had to be kicked out just as lucifer was so the same effects they tried to exalt themselves and they fell. They were abased. Okay. So, what are the results of the fall of man? Adam's direct fellowship with God was now broken. Adam's life source was cut off. Now, I find this interesting. I, I like to think of this as like a, a charged battery. He was breathed into the breath of life. Think of the Energizer Bunny, right? He had the breath of life. He was given this life into him that would last a while but without the continual tying to the source of that life, eventually he would die. And that's exactly what happened, right? Death. Physical separation and death. Adam became subject to corruption. For the first time, he's going to have wrinkles. He's going to have sickness. He's going to have disease. He's going to have old age. He's going to have now possibility of pain and death. Adam became subject for the first time to satanic influence and constant harassment. In the garden, that was not there. Now it is. Adam became a slave to sin instead of king of creation. He tried to be exalted and he was debased. Adam's whole realm and creation became subject to vanity and futility. All things changed. All of creation changed with the fall of man. Right? The decay of things that never would have decayed before now are going to take place. 
Things are going to die that never would have died. Adam becomes identified with Satan also in guilt of rebellion. So now Satan has an ally in man, right? Someone who's also rebelled with him and has an ally there. And he has a a convert now to join him in his rebellion against God. So how does God respond to the fall of man? What I find interesting is whenever pride exerts itself, God in Christ always counter it with humility. The plan that we know is the plan of redemption. I'm going, right? God says we will redeem man. And how is he going to redeem man? Through giving of his only begotten son. And this is a, this is a move of humility. This is a move of condescension. This is a move of going down to our estate in our place. This is exactly what every one of us as Latter-day Saints are called to do. To condescend, to meet pride with humility. Always. Because those who are humble will be exalted. Those who are exalted of themselves will be made humble. So God's answer to pride is always humility. And that's what he did with, with Christ and redemption. Totally identifying with man, right? We have the whole conversation there in Genesis 3 when Christ said, I'll go and I'll make sure that all, right, I will give the opportunity to all, but the glory will be thine. I will go and I will give of myself. You talk about a sacrifice. I mean, can you put yourself even in a remote situation where you would give up, I mean, whatever you think a high estate is, I don't know what's in your mind as a high estate, but giving up that vision of something that's great, being in the presence of God, being a, a king in glory, and, and then being, being brought down. And he condescended himself in many, many ways. And I want to give you several examples of how he brought himself down, his downward steps that Christ did to humble himself. So um, I won't rehash this one. We mentioned Philippians. You can just write this down if you want. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. We read that yesterday. So you can reference that as part of what I'm going to say. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who thought not robbery, remember, who was equal with God, but humbled himself to become as a man, right? So here's seven ways that that Christ, in in his nature, self-humbled himself to meet the demand to redeem man. So first of all, it says, Jesus emptied himself of everything that was his glory, but love. He laid aside his divine attributes, right? Everything that he was, he laid aside. Now, I've heard people say, who suffered more when Christ came? Was it Christ or his father when he sent his son? <laughs> I don't know that there's a really good answer to that one because they, they both, right? The father gave of his son and gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Christ willingly gave of himself as a sacrifice, as a great high priest, to sacrifice through his blood the atonement that man might be redeemed. That is humility. So he laid aside all of his divine attributes, emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He could have, re- he could have remained an angel, That would have been less, but that wouldn't have worked. 
He had to become like man. He had to become like us. He had to take on our nature, right, the form of clay. He uh, was found in uh, appearance to not just be a man, but he was an imperfect man. And you can read this in Isaiah, right? He was, com- he was not, not a beautiful person to look upon necessarily. He wasn't this great uh, physique of a, of a man. He came as an imperfect man. He humbled himself, not as a ruler, not as a military commander, but he came as a babe. He came as a babe. The humblest, weakest, most totally reliant, right? I've heard you say this before this morning, reliant upon others, right, that you can be, which is a babe. He came in the form of a babe, totally reliant. Humility. He endured the ultimate fate of all men. He suffered pain and death. And not just any death. He didn't uh, die in the comfort of his home, surrounded by friends. He died the most horrible death that man had ever come up with, at least for torture purposes. And that was the crucifixion. He died the death of the cross. So he humbled himself in all of these things, right? This is the difference between having pride and having humility. Now, how about us? We're to be like Christ. We said we've taken upon us the name of Christ, that we would follow Christ and take up our cross daily and follow him. So what is required of us? Do we humble ourselves to the point that the spirit of Christ is found to the point that others can be lifted up and that ultimately the reward will be greater if we do, if we become of no, no reputation of ourselves, okay? How many of the uh, early missionaries, right, they would go out and they'd preach the gospel and they loved preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ because it had power to save the souls of men. And any one of them, and, and I know there's several of them that uh, when I was younger were still alive that, that were very, very gifted in this, they were always, always very reluctant and very hesitant to ever be uh, pointed out. They didn't want to be re- men of reputation. They preached the gospel because it was life. And they gave of themselves for that. And those were men of God. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about their gifts. It wasn't about their talents. It wasn't about their abilities. It was about their willingness to lay down themselves in humbleness that others might live, just as Christ did. So your calling is to do the same thing. It may come in different forms in your life, but your calling is the same, right? So, let me see if I can find where I was looking at here. Let's turn uh, real quick here uh, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Four through seven. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, and by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. So the redemption of fallen man was to counter pride was humility. So this is a lesson for us to learn in every aspect of people we come across. If we come across people who are prideful, maybe they're in our own families. Maybe, maybe we need to look at that. And we come across that, what is the proper response? Humility. Humility. Humility is tied very closely to love, right? Without humility, you probably can't practice love. Christ, if he didn't humble himself, would never be able to perform the act of love that the cross was. It would never have happened. If he said, I'm the son of God, I'm, I'm not going down there and taking our man and suffering pain and death and they made their decision, right? Is that something we would say? Those people, they got, well, that's just the way it goes. That's not Christ. So his humility allowed him to express the love that was within him. The only way we're going to express the true love of Christ is through humility. Pride, right? God resisteth the proud, but gives his grace to the humble. He'll give you grace if you humble yourself before him. Now, I remember, I think it was Gray or someone mentioned here, and I want to bring this out. This is also important about who Jesus chose. And he chose men who were humble. And I had an experience about this. I, was, uh, I had been praying about individuals to come in and speak. I'm a, a presiding elder at our congregation. And uh, <clears throat> throughout the years, I've had uh, uh, people in. And sometimes there's like people that are really gifted, right? They're great speakers. Maybe they have uh, great testimonies and stuff. And I was, you know, you pray about what kind of ministry you need. Sometimes you need the powerful ministry of the gospel being preached in its full efforts. Sometimes you need um, a, a fatherly-like counsel brought into the branch. It just varies from time to time. It's wherever the branch is at, right? And um, there are people who I know are very gifted at speaking. And so I went to the Lord and said, Lord, uh, you know, who do you, who do you want me to bring that they might have the ministry that's expedient for this time? And I'm expecting answers, Right? The Lord's going to tell me, well, you need to bring this person or you need to bring that person. That's not how the Lord answered. The answer I got was, and I've never forgotten this because it ties with today and it goes to this universal principle. Bring in men who are humble in spirit. And that's all he told me. I'm like, that's not the answer I was looking for, right? Bring in men who are humble in spirit. And the more I've dwelled on that, the more I realized that there's a lot of wisdom in that because men who are humble in spirit, they may not be the most gifted. They may not be the best preachers. They may not have the most charismatic uh, presentation, perhaps. But if they are humble in spirit, the power of God can work through them to bring the message and the ministry that's needed if they're humble. That's the most important character. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized the wisdom of that that the Lord gave, right? Bring in men who are humble in spirit. And so that's been something that I've, already, I've really taken to heart as a result of that as a, as a pastor. Jesus was also very careful about who he selected and, and the men that he selected in terms of the ministry. And uh, I want to take you to Matthew, the 20th chapter. And he had to teach him because by nature we all have some pride that has to be carefully guarded and kept in check. 
The universal spiritual law represented again in the leadership of the Lord's work. Sometimes I think we choose people for the wrong reasons uh, in, in, uh, in the church. We, 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 uh, I think if we, we hearken to the counsel of having humble men in positions of leadership, we would do much better. Sometimes we choose people because they are charismatic or we choose people because they're very organized or maybe they're just willing to do it. And I'll tell you right now, anyone who wants a position of leadership in the work of the Lord and covets after it and desires it is the wrong person to have in there. I'll tell you that right now. Because anybody who understands that kind of responsibility would never seek after it. In fact, a lot of people run from it. But that would be the wrong person to have. And, and Jesus was very careful about this. Anyone who's not humble is not fit to lead God's people. So Matthew 20, uh, verses 18 through 28. You know this story. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping Jesus and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou that I should do? And she said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We are able. And he said unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is for whom it is prepared of my father, but not mine to give. Now notice, Jesus didn't exert or exalt himself above the authority he was given. And when the ten, the disciples here, the ten heard this, that were with him, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Now, why were they moved with indignation? It could only mean one thing. They also coveted those positions, right? They wouldn't have indignation if they wouldn't have been upset if they didn't also have been coveting those, that, that position, that same thing. They were moved with indignation. Can you imagine Peter? I can imagine him in my mind. <laughs> Lord, I was the one that recognized you as the son of the living God. I'm the one that should be on your right hand, right? You can hear Peter saying that. You can hear other ones, you know, clamor and say, hey, we were with you all the way, you know. They had indignation. There was pride that was there, right? Jesus called them and said, and I love this because he describes the difference between the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom. He goes, he called them together and said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be so among you. If you're going to be my apostles, I'm not... I'm not ordaining you or calling you to exercise lordship over people. Humility, right? Have you ever noticed how the days of the old apostles, that when there was difficulties in the church, Paul, Peter, different ones, they would write letters, and they would exhort, and they would urge, and they would come and maybe even visit and minister. Nowhere do you see them exhorting uh, or exalting themselves in positions of authority over and dictating to. They're pleading with, they're urging, but the authority of the apostles was going to come through the spirit that they carried, not the way of the Gentiles of lordship. And he's trying to get this message across to him here in this situation where they were indignant over the position. But whoso will be great among you, let him be your minister. 
and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What a beautiful description here of what Jesus was teaching the apostles of how they were to minister. They were not to exalt themselves. They were not to be lifted up. They were not to exercise lordship over him like the Gentiles did in dominion. They were to minister and not be ministered unto. They were to be servants. They were to give of themselves in humility. And even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's a beautiful exhortation of apostleship there from Jesus directly to them and of ministry in general, of all of us. And I don't mean if you're just a priesthood member either. Ministry of any kind that you give, right, in that humble way of not exercising any kind of coercion, dominion, any kind of uh, manipulation. It's truly a humble ministry of servanthood and service for the love of your fellow man. And the motivation here is love. Okay? So I think Greg mentioned that earlier about, uh, you know, what does he go and do then? Just to demonstrate this, the very next thing, he girds himself with a towel and he then begins to wash their feet. And why is that such a powerful symbol and emblem? And one of the things, by the way, that is in to be in the school of the prophets, right? This is how important this fundamental scriptural principle is. He girded himself with a towel and he had them take off their shoes from off their feet. Only the, the least of the servants got to wash the feet of people who come into the house, right? You were the lowest of the servants. And he said, right, I need to wash your feet. And you know, Peter, not my feet, Lord, right? Still has that pride, not my feet. And what did he tell Peter? Lest I wash your feet, you can have no place with me. And Peter, being the zealous apostle he always was, going to the extremes, we talked about temperance yesterday, well then, wash my feet and my hands and my face and everything, right? Wash it all then. And you don't understand. You're missing the whole point here, right? He who has his feet washed has no need to having his hands and his face washed. He was teaching them humility, servitude, and he who would be greatest must be the least. This was exercised here with us, and it's also in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 85 of one of the ordinances in the School of the Prophets for the very same reason. It's a spiritual principle that's universal. I wanted to leave you on that thought so you realize how important humility is. So, can somebody tell me, in your own words, what's the universal principle that's found at all times, all places, everywhere, and cannot be broken? Anyone. I failed. <laughs> all right, sister in the back here. Any, do you have the... Exactly. Say it in the mic, though, so everyone can hear it. Exalt yourself and you'll be humbled. Humble yourself and you'll be exalted. Right. The way up is actually down, and the way to fall or go down is when you try to exalt yourself and lift yourself up. Fundamental principle, humility. And in humility, you will be able to demonstrate the love of Christ 
because you're dependent upon him for all things. So I, anyway, just some thoughts for you to chew over, some scriptures for you to look at. There's, I had tons of other examples here, but you get the picture of, of how humility is such an important part of being an attribute of a Latter-day Saint and of this work. Let's close with a word of prayer, if we don't mind here. Uh, Brother Mike, would you close us with prayer today before we close? Almighty God, our kind and loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you now for the, uh, the wisdom that we've, has been imparted to us today. We thank you, Father, for the preparation of our brother, and uh, we thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the spirit that has been amongst us. We thank you, Father, for uh, the cooling breeze and um, the slightly lower temperatures. We thank you, Father, for drawing us all together here and bringing our hearts uh, as, as one. And uh, we thank you, Father, for, for the blessings that you've granted us throughout this week and throughout our lives. And with all this, thanks, Father, we lift it to thee in praise and honor. We hope only to bring honor and glory unto you. And this we pray in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.